Hey, this is Monstropolis, show about anomalies, legends, and monsters. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Seth Breedlove. I'm joined, as always, by my pal, Mark Matsky. Hello there. And our pal, Heather Mosher. Hello. Uh, is this in the... We're not getting paid for advertising from Coke, so that's coming off the table. <laughs> um, that cola product. Yeah. It's, uh, oh, you know what? I really quickly wanted to talk about something. Uh, by the time you're listening to this, the Kickstarter will be done. Long gone. Long gone. It's in our rear view. Mm. It has so slayed our expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have had uh, just a year. Yes. Okay. Someone just pledged, so we are now. Oh, good. <laughs> I've been sitting at 666 backers for the last seven hours. Uh, we're finally beyond that phase of the Kickstarter. Anyway, uh, the Kickstarter, uh, I don't remember if we talked about it too much on the show. I haven't, because I haven't been on the show since December. Uh, but we we uh, killed our goal in like 90 minutes, and then we are now... Um, well over the initial goal so um we this was a it might seem insane or whatever but when we did the first kickstarter in 2015 100,000 was something i would kick around as like ah when we get to that i'll be happy uh we hit 100,000 so yeah. we we finally went over 100,000 earned on a kickstarter um or pledged on a kickstarter so that is very exciting um i've tried to make this as uh apparent or or yeah apparent as possible but our kickstarters are very important to stm because they give us the opportunity to essentially sell the movies directly to our audience rather than have to rely on a distributor or that kind of thing so it's the goal long term would be that the kickstarter is all there is like there's kickstarter and then there's youtube um that'll probably never be the case but um it's that the the fact that the Kickstarter does this kind of makes this kind of money is is the reason we were able to make the movies we do. So if you backed, thank you very much. And if you just watched from the sidelines, that's fine. Uh, be a part of it next year because we will be back because it's a part of what we do. Um, but a huge, yeah, huge thanks to everyone that backed. Um, also, really quickly, wanted to mention we did our first Small Town Monsters. I mean, not the first, but our first our first with this new group of people, uh, small town monsters team meeting last, last Friday in Minerva, uh, yes. fittingly enough, uh, <laughs> at the, uh, classic 57 diner. And it was, uh, a lot of fun. There were eight of us, right? Yeah. Eight, 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 eight of us, mm-hmm. um, including Alex flew in from New Hampshire. So we had, we had the team together. Um, and it was a lot of fun. Very, uh, Mark spoke, it was very inspirational, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, inspired me. And then that night I almost froze to death in the back of my Jeep because <laughs> uh, my he, Mr. Heater buddy betrayed me within 40 minutes of laying down. Oh, no. Well, wasn't that a safety mechanism, though? <laughs> I had a window cracked. Okay. I was fine. All right. <laughs> I was going to be fine. Okay. Uh, but it was a weird... Um, we, some people will see that in episode five of Bigfoot Project, but um, <clears throat> we found one of the weirder things we found at the property this past week. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm excited to hmm. d- dip into that too. But none of this, I'm giving Andy some squad content here. Essentially <laughs> all I'm doing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> this episode is about the mysterious ab- abdominable, ab- <laughs> abdominum, ab- abominable snow monster of the Himalayas. <laughs> um, so I wrote down an outline but real quickly, could could the three of us talk about like how we were introduced to the Yeti or like what the Yeti means, like meant to us? <laughs> what the Yeti means? means to me. Yeah. <laughs> Two paragraphs. I, f- I have a feeling that Mark and I are both going to have very specific <laughs> views on this. And I'd be interested to hear if you do. Yeah. So my first introduction to the Yeti was Unsolved Mysteries. Mm-hmm. Um which I was just watching the clip shortly before we started here to, to refresh my memory of all the parts that they talk about. Is but it as creepy as every other Unsolved Mysteries? It is. And um, what I was telling Andy is that in that they talk about the hand, the Yeti mm. hand. And I remember very... Oh, I remember you telling me about this. Yeah, okay. very clearly being terrified of that hand because it looked so oh. scary. And when that came out, I don't know if it was a rerun when we watched it or if it was like in real time when we watched it because we would watch Unsolved Mysteries every Sunday or whatever it came out. Anyway, that hand stuck with me. And that night I was in kindergarten and I always had a nightlight because I thought as a kid that that made more sense. Really, it doesn't because it creates shadows and stuff to scare you. But I remember with the nightlight on, staring at my bedroom door, waiting to see that hand Whoa. grab my bedroom door and shut it. And I stayed up all night. Oh, uh, oh no. <laughs> so the Yeti, I mean, the hand anyway, was terrifying for me. But other than that, my introduction to anything that was like the Yeti was uh, Bumble from uh, yeah. Rudolph. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So which much different. Uh, you know, he just mm-hmm. had a bad tooth. Equally terrifying. Yeah. But um, that's that was my introduction to the Yeti. He, he kept Yeti me up all night. As a terrifying. symbol of terror. That's right. Wow. Yeah. What about you? Well, it is Bumble. I mean, it was that's my <laughs> yeah. first memory of the of Yeti mm-hmm. as a like a character or a being because I think looking back, I I'm pretty sure you know, I sort of found out about Bigfoot first and then back reverse engineered back to Yeti as you start to get into those books like all the readers digest and uh like compilations of unexplained phenomena, then there's always, it starts with Yeti, then goes to Bigfoot, but I sort of went backwards. So, you know, I remember seeing, like probably my first real exposure to the phenomena is that Shipton cast print, Mm -hmm. the photo of that with the big toe and next next to the pickaxe, you know. Um, And then there's the movie, the Hammer movie with Peter Cushing. That was, I saw that, I'm sure, on... um, independent television growing up somewhere along the line saturday afternoon which is is that that's not the toho isn't there a toho yeti movie? yeah the toho yeti movie is called half human okay that's right and that the problem with that is that it's a banned film in japan because Mm -hmm. of how it depicts some of the people who live in the northern portion of japan Mm -hmm. so it was hard to see it is one of those films you hear about long before you actually see it Except there is a like a Americanized version of it that cuts and pastes the monster scenes with John Carradine sitting in an office talking about all of his great discoveries in Nepal, and it's still good. I mean the 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 sections where it's the monster and his child are still good to see, 
but the original version is really, really good. But that I had to wait a long time to see it. Um, <clears throat> I've I've talked about the the guy I went to church with who who gave me the DVD with with he had recorded all these D- movies on, mm-hmm. on TV or something and gave them to me on a DVD that he had burned for me. Um, and he thought I was already into Bigfoot for some reason. And one of the documentaries there was a there I I've, there was a Yeti documentary, there was a Lake Monster documentary, and there was something about Bigfoot, and then there was something about UFOs. Mm-hmm. It was, so it was all the stuff that I'm now into. Yeah, but like um, the Yeti one I just found on on Sasquatch Archives, um, Todd Prescott's YouTube channel, which is a really great resource if like you're just getting into Bigfoot and you want to watch. Like he's got interviews with. Uh, the the Paul Freeman interview from Good oh, Morning wow. America is on there. Like he's got all sorts of like really cool pieces of uh, Bigfoot history uh, documented on there. But he had the documentary. Uh, apparently, it came out in 1989. Naturally, Peter Byrne is mm-hmm. featured heavily in it, um, and it's got some of that real creepy synth music from the 80s. Mm-hmm. It's got it's got the vibe that I love. <laughs> um, and so I, I actually was watching it right before you got here. Um, but that was like, that's what I remember my introduction to the Yeti being, and then reading Coleman's, um, Tom Slick book, mm-hmm. which is that what you have? This one? Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. Cause there's a, there's a section in there that goes into the Jimmy Stewart, um, oh, right. the J- Jimmy Stewart episode, which I'm sure we'll talk about yeah. in this episode. Um, but that was, I was so fascinated by all that stuff and the fact that in this time period that I love anyway, which is like the fifties and sixties, mm-hmm. there was all this stuff going on and like these vast expedition, yeah. these big expeditions like that were going out looking for the Yeti. So, um, I, that was my introduction and probably like even more so than Bigfoot. I was really into that stuff when I first hmm. started getting into all this. So Yeti has been a big part of my life since I was a child. <laughs> Or since I was like 25. Yeah. Um, so you're just like Lauren Coleman in that respect. Because that, that was his entry point into cryptozoology, was seeing the John Carradine half-human movie on right. TV and going to his teacher and asking like the next day or whenever school was next and asking, what is this about the Yeti? And the teacher said, it's nothing. You know, mm-hmm. ignore it. Go back to your own your real studies Go back to reality. <laughs> yeah. And that sent him on his track to yeah. find out for himself what was behind the Yeti. Yeah. Okay. What like describe, what would you describe? How would you describe the most basic version of the Yeti? Either of you jump in. Like what <laughs> so, is the Yeti? Yeah. So, Heather go. Yeah. So the, the image that come that pops in my head Bumble. is Bumble. Yeah. So you get the white fur. Mm-hmm. Bluish skin. <laughs> Naturally, yeah. Um, Herky jerky movement. Yeah, yeah right. Um, a little bit angry. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but yeah, that, I mean, I guess if somebody says Yeti, the first image that comes to my head, aside from a cartoon, like a cartoon version, is just a white Bigfoot, essentially, mm-hmm. um, but smaller. How accurate. Well, <laughs> no. Yeah, no, not really. I mean, of the of the sightings that are reported, it's it is smaller typically, mm-hmm. but um, is generally like a dark brown or a black color. Mm-hmm. It, they sometimes have a white stripe 
on them. That is reported. But the thing that like Tom Slick that you that you referenced before and one of his main contributions to the whole field was to suggest that there's at least three creatures that all get called Yeti Mm -hmm. in that region of the world. And that one of them is sort of the the Bigfoot Sasquatch cousin. Uh, One is a very small creature, almost like a monkey size three footer. And then the other is almost certainly a bear Mm -hmm. of some type, a rather large bear. And there's interesting stuff uh, Brian Sykes brings out in some of his DNA studies about the uh, the nature of what that bear might be. The brown bear. Yeah. 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 So I had forgot you've, you told you, we've talked about this at some point and like how the different, cause there's obviously it's a large area that we're talking about mm-hmm. and there's multiple types of terrain and, and, and uh, environments, mm-hmm. you know, like, and that kind of plays into the different types. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken. Anyway, I got to say, I found all my information in my hours of research off a website uh, called GrahamHoyland.com. I, I have to confess, I've never heard of this man. <laughs> um, but in looking him up, I now want to read his book because he sounds pretty legit. He's done a lot of like documentary work um, for, for like Travel Channel and Discovery and all that kind of stuff. But uh, he wrote a book called Yeti, An Abominable History. Real quick just reading about it. It says tales of the Himalayan Yeti have been recorded for centuries. This huge ape-like hairy creature has tantalized explorers, mountaineers and locals with curious footprints and elusive appearances. But until recently, no one has been able to identify what this mythical creature might be, or even determine if it is real on an expedition to the Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan, 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 Graham Hoyland found and filmed footprints of the mythical Yeti in a part of the country that has never before been visited by Western explorers in a lost valley near the unclimbed mountain Gangkar Punsum. Is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, thanks, Mark. (laughs) Hoyland believes he was stalked by the mysterious Yeti, a beast so unspeakably powerful that locals say it can kill a yak with one savage blow of its fist. As he delves into the fascinating history of this ancient legend, Hoyland hears tales of the Yeti from Sherpas who have tried and failed to track it. He explores the literary, literary hinterland Mm. behind the legend and searches for the Yeti's American cousin, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, their African relative, Mokale Mbembe. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, it sounds super cool, uh, this book does, so I'm going to have to check it out. What's up? Yeah. I, I'm not sure how to, how also, all this, it all Loch Ness too. So yeah, it that all, was confusing oh. as well. They're all related. They're all cousins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You didn't know all cryptids are all one big family, but this guy, <laughs> this guy has climbed the mountains and done his due diligence. So, um, all those, <laughs> uh, people watching on YouTube who say, get out in the woods. They can't say that to this guy. He's That's been in right. the woods yeah. and in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you, you talked about these, he, he actually lists the types here. So the first and largest is the terrifying Zute, Zute, D-Z-U-T-E-H, Zute. We'll or, go with that. All sure. right. Zute, who stands eight feet tall when he is on his back legs. However, he prefers to walk on all fours. Mm. He can kill a yak with one swipe of his claws. Uh, and this would be your brown bear. 
mm-hmm. guy, the brown bear man, which, <clears throat> yeah, we should talk about maybe that with the evidence stuff, but um, Sykes did a documentary that, or a series, it was like three episode series, I believe. Yep. And uh, books to match. Mm-hmm. Well, books. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> uh, but so that's number one. Number two is uh, the smaller Chute or Thelma. <laughs> what? Thelma. It says the, the other one's the Louise. Chute or, <laughs> or Thelma, a little reddish colored child sized creature who walks on two legs and has long arms. He is seen in the forests of Sikkim and Nepal, mm-hmm. which I believe is kind of air, um, not arid, um, very much like a rainforest. Correct. correct? That yeah. is correct. Yeah. And so I think that's the thing, too, that I wanted to mention here is the, like, the first and the largest, the big like bear-like dude, that's the one that's seen kind of up on the, up in the mountains. Up the in, high up, range, up yeah. Up in the high range. Up in the, the snow fields. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Chute is down in the rainforest. And then there is the Mete, 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 who is most like a man and has orangey red fur on his body. He attacks humans and is the one most often depicted on monastery wall paintings. Yete or Yeti. Is a mutation of his name. He looks most like the Tintin in Tibet Yeti. Mm-hmm. So there we go. We now know all we need to know. About <laughs> um, and that would be the one that had the creepy hands. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't like that one. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, in that description, that thing that draws to mind comparisons is an orangutan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With the hair color and the uh, approximate size, the only thing is that they're not native to mainland Asia. Mm-hmm. So the that's the hidden animal part of that. Well, and the f- the fact that it's hanging out in cold. I mean, is are there any primates that's that spend large amounts of their time in like in cold environments? <laughs> they're typically no. I mean, they need to be tropical. Yeah, yeah, kept warm to Isn't a certain there- degree. A type of primate that's like that, yeah. That's like fuzzy, really fuzzy, and they show them hanging out in the uh, hot springs on these videos. They're just chilling Mm -hmm. in the hot springs, but they're like really fluffy and snowy. Yeah, they're in Japan. Snow. That's it. Snow monkeys. Yeah. In temperate areas, like Japanese macaque. Oh, macaque. Okay. Yeah. So some, but that's um, so. Those are cute. Pliny. I love those guys. Pliny. Pliny. It's Pliny? It's Pliny. Is that true? Yes. Wait, what? Pliny, Pliny, the, Pliny elder. the Elder, not Pliny? Why did I always Pliny? Boy, I don't know, but it's and, Pliny. Okay, Tom circa 300 BC, Swift. India. <laughs> Tom Swift. <laughs> Famed Bigfoot and Yeti investigator Tom Swift. Um, Pliny the Elder. I don't like that at all. There's one end. There's one okay. in Pliny doesn't, am I wrong? Doesn't it seem like it should be Pliny? I, yeah, I, my preference would be Pliny, even though it is Pliny. Yeah. It does, it deserves a long I based on old Thank school you. grammar. You, yeah, it yeah. does. See, sometimes Mark agrees with me, not often. But <laughs> Alexander the Great set out to conquer Persia and India in 326 Alexander. I was glad that you caught that. Alexander Petikov, (laughs) the Great, set out to conquer Persia and India in 326 BC, penetrating nearly as far as Kashmir. He heard about strange... Anyone want to correct my pronunciation? (laughs) Kashmir? (laughs) 
He heard about strange wild men. If we men. do the riff, will we get in trouble? Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. I'm going to mispronounce something strike. else in this because I don't know how to do this. He heard about strange wild men in the snows who were described as something like the set, satyrs? Set, satyrs. Satyrs. The lustful Greek gods with the body of a man, but the horns, <laughs> legs, and feet of an animal. Alexander demanded to have one of them brought to him, but the local villagers said the creature could not survive at low altitude. Later, Pliny the Elder wrote in his Naturalist Historia, in the land of the satyrs, in the mountains that lie to the east of India, live creatures that are extremely swift as they can run on both four feet and on two. They have bodies like men and because of their speed can only be caught when they are ill or old. That's 300 B.C., they're talking about Yeti. Am I hearing music? Yes, you I can't. Are. I have my headphones on. What the heck is going on out there? Um, anyway, that seems to be the earliest sort of. <laughs> <laughs> so loud. Uh, the the earliest um, <laughs> mention of the Yeti. Am I correct or wrong? Do you have anything? I don't have anything earlier than that. No, mm. no, no. I have the first English reference in 1832, mm. the Journal of Asiatic Society of Bengal, mm. that describes in northern Nepal an orangutan-like creature. And just a real quick reference to that. It's that isn't. It's not like a whole article about it, but it just mentions there's weird sort of um, ape-like creatures being seen in uh, on the India side um. of Everest. I have something from 1832, or not 1832, but 1830. Uh, earliest Western account of a wild man in the Himalayas dates from, never mind, 1832. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's given by Brian Halton Hodgson, the court of Nepal's first Brit British resident and the first Englishman permitted to visit this forbidden land. Hodgson had to contend with a hotbed that was and still is Nepalese politics. He was particularly interested in the natural history and ethnography of the region, and so his report carries some weight. He recorded that his native hunters had been frightened by a wild man. Religion had introduced the Bandar, Rhesus Macaque, monkey into the central region, where it seems to flourish half domesticated in the neighborhood of temp temples in the populous valley of Nepal proper. My shooters were once alarmed in the Kachar by the apparition of a wild man, possibly an orang, but I doubt their accuracy. They mistook the creature for a Oh, golly. I cack a demon, cock a raxious demon, and fled from it instead of shooting it. It moved, they said, erectly. Was covered with long, dark hair and had no tail. Um, that might be the same. I think it's yeah, just like it a, a more detailed Correct. version of the same thing. Okay. Yep. Yeah. All right. I got one from 1889. You got anything between there? Do you no. got anything from there? Heck no. How much research did you do? Unsolved mystery. <laughs> yeah. I like that Heather has moved into my role in this episode. Uh, 1889? You got anything? No. Okay. Well, L Graham Hoyland did. Uh, Major Lawrence Waddell, <laughs> Northern India, circa 1889. The first sighting of Yeti footprints by a Westerner was made by the English soldier and explorer Major Lawrence Waddell. He was a professor of Tibetan culture and a professor of chemistry, a surgeon and an archaeologist, and he had roamed Tibet in disguise. Doesn't say if he was... Doesn't say if he was disguised as the Yeti, but that would have right. been crazy if he yeah. was like roaming around in a... 
gorilla suit and found <laughs> Yeti footprints. He is thought Look by some. Look at me. I'm the Yeti. They later based the movie Half Human on him. Yeah, right. He's thought it was by a documentary. Some, that's the secret of that film. Oh, he's actually. Okay, so he's like the basis for Indiana Jones. One of his theories included a belief that the beginning of all civilization dated from the Aryan Sumerians, who were blonde Nordics with blue eyes. All right. Let's move, let's move on. They apparently, he had some Nazi ties. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Apparently. Uh, the belief in these creatures is universal among Tibetans. None, however, of the many Tibetans who have who I have interrogated on this subject could ever give me an authentic case. On the most superficial investigation, it always resolved into something heard tell of. These so-called hairy wild men are evidently the great yellow snow bear, Ursus isabellinus, which is highly carnivorous and often kills yaks. All right, that's just more of the, more of the same. More stuff. I got 1920s too. Can we can we get into some of the characters of Oh, of course. Of Yeti, which we probably need to talk about that hand cast at some point too, because it plays in so heavily with like Peter Byrne and Tom Swift slash Slick. <laughs> uh, so this is CIA alias yeah. Tom Swift. Yeah. Well, yeah, we can talk uh certainly about Tom Slick, who's you know, his whole influence is really huge because in the 50s, he started sponsoring actual expeditions into areas that had really never had a Western expedition before looking for specifically uh, the Yeti creature, looking for evidence. What you, What's really interesting, you get this in the, the 50s, is the sense that they're right on the cusp of a find mm -hmm. like all they have to do is show up and it's just a matter of time, maybe days, maybe weeks, they're going to get something. Mm -hmm. And that hope was really prevalent in Tom slick in how he was, who he recruited and how he brought people in. He was an oil and a beef businessman had millions of dollars, inherited a lot of money as well. He wasn't always able to access that money easily because it being tied up in you know, his investments and is still making money for him. So to pull out a huge bunch of money was not always possible for him. So he gets another guy involved named Johnson. So they're going to, when you look into the history of this, you're going to have slick expedition and slick Johnson. And Johnson is just the guy who's helping him fund, you know, have the liquid assets to be able to pay these guys. Uh, what's really cool is that like on this very first expedition uh, that they, that uh, Slick sets up, the first guy that he gets on board is Peter Byrne. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Peter Byrne, of course, is uh, at this point already has a reputation for being an adventurer and a guide, but he was really sort of waiting around for somebody who would be able to sponsor him on these really big game hunts, such as for Yeti, unexplained. Stuff. So um, all that is to say, it's Peter Byrne is the through line on all of the slick expeditions. No matter who else is going on these, it's, it's he and uh, sometimes his brother, actually, uh, Brian Byrne, who doesn't get the same level of attention, but it's he was. Name. It's not yeah, as cool. <laughs> it's not as cool. Um, so just real quickly, Tom Slick 
His father died when he was 14. Uh, by 1960, he had inherited $15 million the way his will was set up for him to receive his, his father's money. Um, he went to Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire uh, for his prep school work, ended up at Yale. Uh, while he was at Yale, he took a summer and went around and just did whatever he wanted to, including going to Loch Ness this with some Slick? of his friends. Yeah. Slick was in Exeter? Yeah. Slick was in Exeter. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was definitely worth a mention. Yeah. That he spent time there. You know, that's where Joe Hill lives, not to get off track here. That's where Joe yeah. Hill lives. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> Andy's making a mental note of the timestamp so he can cut that out. <laughs> so, I mean, what that, what that Loch Ness trip proves is that he was interested in cryptozoology and unknown topics. And it's, it's pretty much proven at this point, based on timing of things, that it was Bernard Heuvelman's book on the track of unknown animals that inspired Slick to actually do something about discovering something mm. and putting his money behind uh, an event. Um, he, his dad had been a successful businessman, obviously, with all that money to inherit, and he had spent significant time in India. And as, some of Tom Slick's greatest memories were of his father telling him tales of India, you know, all of the cultural stuff and legends and things that he had learned. And he looked forward to his dad bringing him back stuff from India. So that, I think, also helps explain why Slick was so eager to get back to that general area. There's some personal reasons as well. So in spring of 1956, Slick just undertakes his own travel to go to the, um, the Indian side of Everest and start asking around. I mean, he was, in, a, in one way, an original just story collector. That's how he got his first ideas about Yeti and his ideas about Yeti being separate creatures or distinct species instead of just one mm -hmm. Bigfoot-like monster um and to give sort of like cultural context to this and biological context 19 by 1956 only nine westerners had seen the giant panda in the wild hmm. wow. i mean it was in the 30s that one was brought back and the interesting crossover is that one of the men uh responsible for bringing a giant panda back to a western zoo would end up on a slick expedition hmm. So that's kind that's of a cool. super tie-in. Am I wrong, or isn't the 30s also around the same time that the gorilla mountain gorilla was established? Slightly earlier. Was it? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. So you've got... I tried. Yeah. <laughs> so this was... The, the situation is that Peter Byrne is... So Slick does his recon, goes back home. Peter Byrne's just over there, like... Hanging out. Doing... Peter Byrne things. And he ends up talking to Tenzing Norgay, who was Sherpa for um, Sir Edmund Hillary, who's an important part of the story, actually. And it's, it's Tenzing who tells Peter Byrne, have you heard about this Tom Slick guy? Because I think you should probably cross paths. It might lead to something. And so Peter Byrne contacts Slick. Slick writes back almost immediately, and that's how the first expedition gets rolling is based off of their um their correspondence 
at the time, in order to get in to Nepal, you had to have some institution. The government of Nepal said, made this rule, you have to have an institution sponsor you. You can't just come in here looking for, to, looking for monsters, looking for creatures. So he actually, with ties to Texas, where he was living at the time, San Antonio, San Antonio Zoo sponsored their expedition. So they were good. They could come in and, and look for whatever they wanted to look for. And that leads to the slick Yeti reconnaissance of March 1957. Uh, it was only about three to five weeks long. And the only people from a Western perspective who were on it were Tom Slick himself, Peter Byrne, and then an Indian guide named Andy Bacchetti. And in, along with those three guys, there were um, seven Sherpas, 40 porters. So 40 guys just to carry their stuff. That was considered a small expedition. And that's going to be in contrast to some of these other expeditions like National Geographic would sponsor one where they had like upwards of 400 people. Jeez. It's like an army. Yeah, it is. Looking for Yeti, you know. Yeah. And so Slick took that into account and he said, you're not going to sneak up on anything <laughs> with 400 people right. walking around. So he was really interested in like keeping it small. Um, their goal was to collect specimen. And this was even back in 1957, very controversial because Slick was like, I want a specimen one way or the other. Uh, dad live doesn't matter. Yeah. And ditto. <laughs> uh, so, you know, they, they, um, made their way to the Aran Valley, A-R-U-N in Northeast Nepal. It was chosen because there are a lot of stories of a seven-foot, very Bigfoot-like Yeti being seen in the forested areas. So they really weren't going on this expedition to the snow fields. They were looking in the forests. And long story short, they ended up finding tracks. Uh, both Peter Byrne and Tom Slick each independently found track lines, which they photographed and casted. Um, and that kind of set the tone for the expeditions that followed the only thing with tom slick's involvement is early on in that trip they were in like imagine these talked about indiana jones you imagine some old nepalese rickety bus mm -hmm. that's what all their gear was on and slick and burn were on this bus and it was parked on a decline facing up and i burn and slick were in the bus and the brakes malfunction and it starts to roll backwards down a hill mm -hmm. so there is no way to stop it and they both jump they have to jump off the bus and slick jumps off lands on both knees mm. and sustains some significant injury it didn't keep him from going on the rest of the trip but um by that time you know slick was i don't know if he was married and divorced by this point but his mother had a lot of say in his life. And she said, I do not want you to go on anything that dangerous ever again. And he didn't. Mm -hmm. He listened Aww. to his mom, yeah. never went back to that area of the world. But there's pictures of him and there's pictures of him in the book from that trip towards the end of it. And his knees are all bandaged up. You can see where he jumped out of the bus. That's terrifying. Yeah. When, when did they find the hand? The hand is on, I believe it's the 1958 Slick Johnson expedition okay. where they go specifically to the monasteries and 
start finding relics and stuff like that. Interesting too is I, I believe prior to this, prior to, to burn even being involved in, in uh, Yeti explore Yeti expeditions. He, he claims to have found or seen tracks, right? Oh yeah. Like, like 1940 something. Mm -hmm. He claimed he saw tracks before he was even really aware of what they were, what Mm -hmm. that was. Yeah, that's true. And speaking of that on the 57 expedition, Byrne finds a track line. He spends three hours following. Mm. I mean, that's just, I don't know how many like number of tracks that translates into, but that's, it's a lot of Yeti footprints to yeah. follow around. Are those tracks, the other tracks that, that they talk about finding, are they comparable to the Shipton stuff? Yeah, I, they're very much like that. That the big toe digit yeah. sticking off the side. Mm-hmm. Interesting. About the, the question with the Shipton tracks always is, did the, um, because some of them were in snow, did they melt and refreeze and change shape? But a lot, like in the example of Tom Slick, the tracks that he found were not in snow. They were in mud. So they were more of a reliable sort of print. The, they, isn't the theory on what causes the shift in tracks that it's basically like a bare double step and then like a squirrel yeah. or something? Is it just a bare double step? I thought there was like a third angle to that that made it seem more outlandish. Where like oh a, a, yeah, like a squirrel or something had to jump into. Oh really? That See, yeah. I haven't I, that that I'm not aware of. Okay, I know it's just maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, but the it's that double step that almost makes it look like it's going forward and backward at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you you sometimes hear the weird detail to Yeti that their feet are ba- on backwards. Mm-hmm. That's on in a lot of the folklore yeah. type tales surrounding that, mm-hmm. and and some have suggested maybe. Seeing that site, that kind of track is what led them to that conclusion. So now that I'm, I'm think okay. So the hand is found. When is the okay? Is it the skull that? It's like a scalp, isn't it? Is is it the scalp that that Jimmy Stewart is involved in, or is it the hand? It's the hand. It's the hand. Yeah. Okay. Because the, the this is my favorite bit. Of yeah. The, the scalp. Story. The scalp is something that really um, Sir Edmund Hillary made a big deal out of the scalp. Mostly to poke fun at it. I'm hungry. Yeah. <laughs> can't help it. And to use it as like, what happened, it was like in 1960. That was the World Book Scientific Expedition. That was Sir Edmund Hillary and Marlon Perkins mm-hmm. of Mutual Omaha's Wild Kingdom. They were both involved in this. And they went into it essentially to debunk Abominable Snowman. Like there's nothing to this. And they did a good job. Because they got the most attention, obviously. They were going there to make a film and to to do a publication based on what... And, and that's like in the later part of Lauren Coleman's book, Tom Slick, True Life Encounters. He um, says that Hillary expedition and what they did and what they brought back pretty much set Yeti exploration back decades. Because Tom Slick wasn't there to make you know, like to trumpet his finds. Mm. He just wanted to find find one, mm. bring it back. But the Hillary thing was much more of a publicity-related event, and they their bias was totally, this is all false. Right. And so people hearing those names attached with that opinion, people sort of just gave up on that and, and started concentrating on Bigfoot, United States. 
is a lot easier. I mean, if you're <laughs> from North America, it's easier to go to the Northwest than all the way over there. So yeah, let's talk about the hand. Cause there's even with like Brian Sykes, there's interesting stuff about the DNA testing mm-hmm. of the Pang Boch, Pang Boche. I don't know how to say it exactly, but the hand fit, factors into it and was tested mm-hmm. so that's uh that was what were we on 57 the 58 slick johnson expedition the the number of searchers grows and that's where you get peter burns brother brian and gerald russell gerald russell is the guy who's involved in the recovery of the giant panda that i mentioned before mm-hmm. This is one of those classic seemed like a good idea at the time expeditions, but the, those people involved could not get along. They each had their own idea about how this was going to work and what where the best place to go and the best method of securing a, a creature would be. And poor Tom Slick, you know, obeying his mom, yeah. Staying at home what you gotta do. is trying to manage them by sending these letters that somehow get to these guys <laughs> up in the mountains. I'm still trying to figure out how that works, but he's like, no, try to carry your pigeon. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> try to work with each other here. The main thing is getting the creature, you know, and the, some of those letters are reproduced in the book. They're, they're kind of sad, but funny because yeah. you can imagine the strength of personality involved with these guys. And if you've ever heard Peter Byrne, for example, I mean, He's a good guy, but he's going to do things his way. And that's itself, how all these guys are. The book itself, too, is probably my favorite Coleman book. Mm-hmm. And and the story, Slick's story in itself would make an amazing movie, which is apparently that was a thing at one time that was go- going to happen. Um, but, yeah, just wanted to mention that yeah. th- that book is definitely worth checking out. Yeah, it's great. It was really good. This So this one ended up, oh, and to give you an idea, like culturally back home, Newsweek actually reported on this expedition mm. in February of 58. Um, they spent 113 days approximately in the field. And it was quite a, you know, it was basically split into three teams, each guy sort of doing their own thing and wanting to be the first to get the little, creature because they were after the three footer yeah Uh, that's important to say too they had decided at least we're not going to get the eight foot oh sorry i thought you were making a motion there so the thing that they found on the expedition included lots of tracks somebody like a porter or a sherpa had a sighting of a three foot yeti in a creek bed that he thought was hunting frogs because the frogs would come out at a certain time of night and he saw one in that situation. This really grabbed my attention for obvious reasons. There was a an alleged Yeti cave that was discovered. Inside, it was lined with juniper nests. Huh. So in, in the description that's given in the book, it sounded all very familiar like in Olympic, construction. Yeah. Olympic project. Yeah. Really? Just juniper instead of huckleberry. Huh. And then, of course, uh, photographs of the scalps and the hands uh, that they were given access to. Um, That was part of that 1958 expedition. And then it's the whole intrigue of getting pieces of the hands out of the country. That's where, you know, Jimmy Stewart and his wife, Gloria, get involved with what amounts to smuggling the hand out. Yeah. Of the United States and Jimmy back was here. Like friends with 
Slick, right? Or he was friends with Slick, and he was friends with another. Um, I believe Johnson was the last name. They were big name, big game hunters. Okay, he was really acquainted with them and and knew them well, and evidently had vacation slash adventured with them before. So they all worked together to get it out, and various people involved in the search ended up with bits and pieces of the hand, which is how it was able to be tested by Sykes much, much later on. Right. But that was, there was also some mystery about the hand because once it left Nepal, there's this brief period of time where it like disappears or something. Correct? Yeah. I didn't get really far into that, but the, one of those questions involved with that is how, you know, was there damage done to the specimen? Mm -hmm. Because in, original pictures of the hand, the thumb appears quite long. Mm. Um, and then it's, it shortens, you know, when it's recovered, whenever that is. It, so the question is, was it the same hand? Or was it something different? Mm. If it was the same hand, was there damage done to it? And it seems likely mm. that it was the same hand and that people just took parts because mm-hmm. they wanted, you know, for posterity's sake have something to give. And that's, in a sense, I mean, that's how Lauren Coleman ends up with samples to give to the Brian Sykes test, is that he had, I think, hair samples that were taken from one of the slick expeditions labeled as Animal X, because that's what they referred to it as. And they ran tests on it and found out, I'm not going to remember this, that the hairs belonged to a Cero. S-E-R-O-W, which I had no idea what that was. I had to look it up. It's kind of a goat-like animal huh. found in that part of the world. So, um, Oh, and the other thing, in the DNA test on the hand, mm-hmm. in Sykes' um, estimation, it was contaminated. I mean, it had to have been. It had been handled by so many people, and that he was able to narrow it down based on the type of DNA sequence that uh, what he tested was actually Peter Byrne DNA. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Which oh. leads, which opens the door in Sykes' opinion to the idea of retesting the hand mm-hmm. because it it could still hold some sort of information that would be helpful. I, I had a really, it's not formulated in my head, so maybe the audience can kind of put the pieces together here, but there's a joke in there somewhere about Peter Byrne DNA being... <laughs> Sort of all over the all over the world. Uh, all right. Well, the Yeti. Uh, well, he had a reputation. That's yeah. all I'm saying. Slightly, uh, slightly related to that, actually, yeah. but oh. much, much more mundane. Is the um, I think it was the Johnson family actually gave donated dogs to the one of these expeditions. Mm-hmm. And nobody really wanted to be the caretakers of these tracking dogs. Mm-hmm. And they eventually let them go or gave them to somebody in uh, in the re- that region of the world. So Coleman says, you know, it may be the case that there's dogs over there that are still related to um, the Johnson Slick expedition dogs. I just remembered something, too. That thing with his mom, that is one of the key reasons that the the Bigfoot expeditions of the fifties and sixties that were funded by Slick were funded by Slick, because he he couldn't go to Nepal anymore, but he could go to 
Pacific Northwest and wander around the woods right. with his buddies there. Yeah, so absolutely. That's one of the reasons like the, the PNW, the early PNW expeditions even happened. Correct. Which yeah. I believe I know because of you. So. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we did not touch on everything here, but we, no. are, we are out of time. Um, so I guess we're going to be doing Yeti part two very soon. Watch for it. Watch. Keep your eyes peeled. Watch for all three of those Yeti creatures coming your way. If you're a fan of the show, and we know you're out there, whoever you are, uh, please go leave a rating and review on iTunes or Google Play or whatever. Uh, maybe leave a nice comment on YouTube to offset some of the insanity. Um, and you can also give a little thumbs, hit that thumbs up, subscribe to the YouTube channel. And uh, you become a, a channel member to watch longer versions of the show as well. But thanks for listening to this week's Yeti Talk. <laughs>